The Energy Gang is brought to you by Aurora Solar. If you could ask 20 experts in the solar industry one question, what would it be? Well, this June, you'll have the opportunity to do that. Join over 4,000 solar professionals on June 8th and 9th for Aurora Solar's second annual virtual summit. You're going to hear from and interact with industry experts, policymakers, sales experts, and more. So get your questions ready. Save your spot at empower.aurorasolar.com energygang or go to the show notes to sign up. The Energy Gang is also brought to you by Enel X, the global leader in advanced energy solutions. Enel X serves large businesses, governments, utilities, as well as thousands of consumers in an effort to bring cleaner, smarter solutions to market and enable rapid decarbonization efforts at all levels of the economy. Learn more about what Enel X can do for your business at enelx.com. This is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. What if someone told you that we have everything we need to decarbonize most of the economy? We just need to start electrifying every new car, furnace, water heater, dryer, and cook stove, and industrial process starting mm, right now. And yeah, put solar on every roof that can handle it. This week, a wartime plan for winning the climate fight with clean electricity. What'll it take? Catherine, how's your perch there in Virginia? You were just complaining about how hot it was before we started recording. It is. The swamp is starting to get swampier. So, yeah, I guess at some point I will have to turn on my electrical air conditioning. (laughs) Well, I can see the sun coming in your windows. It looks nice there, but it's it's looking a little dark over there, Saul. What time is it? Uh, three fifty three a.m. Where I am. <laughs> well, uh, I just want to say that Saul is so dedicated to spreading the gospel of electrification that he woke up at three in the morning to tape with us from Australia, and that's all. Is Saul Griffith, the founder and chief scientist of Rewiring America? How are you? Really good to see you, and thank you so much for taking the time to do this i am good and um just so that people have some visual in their mind of where i am i'm actually living just outside of wollongong which has one of australia's largest coal ports um in fact just before the show started recording i heard a coal train go past my window and as i look out to sea because i can see the pacific ocean i can see half a dozen boats lining up to take some coal to china or india to burn it so i am um on the very front line, at the coalface of climate change. (laughs) Well, if we are on a wartime footing for decarbonizing the economy, I would consider Saul a five-star general of the Electrify Everything movement. He's got the practical in-the-trenches experience. He's founded or co-founded around a dozen companies or organizations. And also, he's got the, the war college experience with a PhD from MIT in material science and information theory. And Saul is now trying to marshal the world around the rewiring America vision, which is extremely ambitious, but what you call a defensible and believable pathway. So we'll talk about what that pathway is. So today we're going to talk through it in a couple of parts. First, the technical and the practical pieces, then the policy framework for trying to get this done. So Saul, a lot of our listeners may have heard you on our What It Takes episode that aired on the Energy Gang, but for anyone who hasn't heard your story, what brought you to this obsession with electrification? Wow. Um, it probably all began on Sydney Harbour Bridge, uh, which I shut down with a, with 5,000 of my closest cycling friends in, on the eve of the original Kyoto conference, trying to get Australia to take a better stance on climate. So the interest in addressing climate change goes way back. When I finished grad school and moved to Silicon Valley and was starting work in energy industries and, in fact, had founded Makani Power, a wind energy company, um, to justify the extraordinary capital required to get that project to happen, I started looking at um, energy data in detail. Um, and the history of energy data and where we where where it came from, why we know what we know. Um, that became a whole body of work, including something called the Super Sankey, which was a a map of the entire U.S. economy's energy flows from in you know kilograms of coal, cubic feet of natural gas inputs, all the way through to you know what portion of our energy is used in animal slaughterhouses, what portion of our energy is used driving children to school. Um, in air conditioners, in low-income houses, 
etc etc um and that map was really done sort of to highlight what needs to be worked on and where the opportunities and the gaps are um to marry that to my professional entrepreneur life um but it also became a fabulous map for thinking about very deep decarbonization pathways um and the reality of getting it done so i want to talk about why electrification catherine you have been kind of monitoring what different organizations and folks are saying about the the role of electrification so just help us set the tone here why electrification Yeah, so Saul and I happen to be in the same council at the World Economic Forum on clean electrification. And this is kind of the next iteration of a series of councils I've been either on or running on the future of energy, the future of advanced energy technologies. And now we're talking about electrification because this seems to be the next really big thing that we have to do. And it will impact every single sector. I know Saul will dive into some of the sectors, but just IRENA itself, which is the International Renewable Energy Association, says that the building sector, of course, would see the highest direct electrification rates as much as 73% um, compared to 32% today, and that's by 2050. Um, And then also the industrial sector could get up to 35% by 2050. Transportation would see the most electrification. They estimate that 80% of all road transport could be electrified by 2050. So there are enormous possibilities. And there are also other groups like CLASP, which is a resource on appliance efficiency that says the next big opportunity for climate action is really on those tens of millions of gas furnaces, oil boilers, and coal stoves that have tons of emissions that could be electrified. And throughout the globe, we're seeing this, and Saul and I listen to a lot of presentations and people all over the world trying to grapple with how do we really electrify everything? And nobody has had the right answer necessarily yet, but everybody is thinking about it and trying to figure out how do we do this, given that we have technologies today that will work and get it done. We just need to accelerate those. So let's talk a little bit more about why, from an emissions perspective, everyone is suddenly paying attention to this. And so I'll kind of characterize your plan, and you can tell me if I'm right or wrong about this, and then I want you to go a little bit deeper into what is in it. So you're taking a pretty different approach by the standards of the historical standards of clean energy and environmental idea smiths. You're saying, don't pay that much attention to efficiency. Don't worry about changing lifestyles that much. Don't bank on a carbon tax. Stop worrying about the buckshot approach that includes CCS and hydrogen. Just electrify the hell out of the economy. Deploy a lot of renewables, and you can waste less energy as a result and have a great chance or have the greatest chance of preventing more than a degree and a half Celsius of warming. So tell me a little bit more about this pathway. Well, um, there's a lot there. Uh, (laughs) Well, did I characterize it correctly? Yes, grossly. Let's quickly history lesson. So the the oil crisis landed on Nixon's desk in 73. And he said to the closest thing he had to a Department of Energy at that time, which is a joint committee on atomic energy, which is a bunch of nerds trying to plan America's nuclear energy future. Uh, figure out what's wrong with the economy. 15, 10 to 15% of US energy supply had been cut off because of the um, oil embargo. The They commissioned um, a couple of people, including Georgetown University and other people, to sort of draw up these Sankey diagrams of energy flow in the US economy. It was that moment when they defined the somewhat arbitrary buckets, residential, commercial industrial transportation and electricity sector and they the hypothesis was the solution to this 15 percent supply problem was to become 15 percent more efficient on the demand side so 15 percent more efficient vehicles 15 percent more efficient furnaces and appliances and magically you solve the oil crisis of the 70s this was 73 through 76 as that transpired. It was coming hot on the heels of the 70, 1970 Earth Day. The environmentalists were looking to a next big thing to back. The answer to the energy problem at that time, which was the embodiment of Rachel Carson's um, sort of 
environmental woes was the energy system uh, and the answer was efficiency. So that narrative stuck in our minds for years and years and still persists. Like if we're just a little bit more efficient, we'll win. But you, if you think about it, you can't efficient your way to zero emissions. Um, it doesn't matter how efficient the car is or the natural gas heater, it's still burning fossil fuels. So then you, you we now need something entirely different, which is transformation. And then you need to ask yourself the question, for any one of these energy flows in the US economy, what gets you the transformation to zero emissions? And then you stare at the flows and you figure out which ones you can do with biofuels and which ones may be amenable to something else. Um, but given that hydrogen is really starts with electric electricity anyway, given that electrofuels start with electricity anyway, the answer to nearly everything is electrification. And with that view, you then realize that hydrogen's a pretty poor way, sort of intermediary, after you started with electricity, as are electrofuels. And the economics increasingly look like the answer is wholesale electrification of very nearly everything in the economy. And as, you know, month by month, more and more of these demand-side uses look amenable to wholesale electrification. I actually think the IRENA numbers that Catherine quoted are low. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. I was going to say... All of the studies that have been done so far by these groups have, have been super conservative and don't get us to where we actually need to be. We still have absurd things happening in the world, like the IEA makes their big announcement about their spectacular modeling. Let's begin with the IEA should be ashamed of 40 years of being so far off on every single model <laughs> they've ever had in their annual reports. But this, this year, they're like, okay, here's how we're going to do it. And they model in three terawatts of electrolysis for hydrogen. So they literally say that our pathway is to create as much electricity as we do today and make hydrogen out of it, um, which is absurd because uh, you will lose at least two thirds of that hydrogen by the time it comes back to be electricity to run something. Um, so, I, you know, I don't, I don't think there is spectacular modeling going out there on the, the wholesale transformation that we needed. Part of this is is that it is actually kind of an efficiency play because you're losing less energy by not lighting as much stuff on fire. Is that is that right? <laughs> I'm glad you reminded me, and I'm, and I'm glad you referenced to it as not lighting as many things on fire. <clears throat> um, we squeezed out n most of the efficiencies that are easy, the thermodynamic efficiencies for burning stuff, um, and you know, efficiency programs might get us another five or ten percent. But what is shocking, or maybe obvious, depending on how much you've been reading, an electric car driven by solar or wind or nuclear or hydro will use about one-third of the energy of a gasoline car, maybe less than one-third. Heat pumps for heating your homes will use about one-third of the natural gas or the, or the propane or the fuel oil that you're using to heat your home. If you sort of take these efficiencies of electrification and you run it through every single component of the economy without anything that we would call traditional efficiency, which is um, slightly better machines or slightly smaller or slightly colder homes, but you just say, okay, well, just take what we do today, same size cars, same size homes, and electrify it. The US economy needs less than half of the energy that it uses today. You can ask yourself a secondary question, is it a good idea that we can continue to drive giant cars that crush children and have giant homes that ruin <laughs> enormous tracts of lands in sprawling suburbs? Um, but it is possible to, climb, to solve climate change with, with those things. And I think if you're a little bit politically pragmatic, you'll recognize that people don't want their chain, the change in their lives to be too much when they solve climate change. So from a practical perspective, what, what does this actually mean in terms of swapping out like the billions of things around across the economy in any given country that need to run now on clean electricity? Can you run through them and just help us understand the scope of what we're talking about and the speed? The machines that exist in, there's a concept in the climate literature called committed emissions. So these are the emissions that a machine that exists today that burns fossil fuel will emit before it dies its natural life. So if you're a natural gas plant that was built in somewhere in 2016, likely you're going to be burning natural gas until 2040 or 2050. 
<clears throat> if you're a, a gasoline car that was bought yesterday, you're going to um, burn gasoline for 20 more years. If we allow all of the machines that exist in the world today to burn fossil fuels through the end of their natural life, that will lock in about 1.8 degrees of warming, plus or minus some um, estimation error, so one and a half to two degrees. So you can then make the fairly extraordinary statement that um, to hit the climate tar targets that we should, you know, we should aspire for our children and for ourselves to be at one and a half to two degrees, you now need every single new machine that's brought into the world to be a zero emission machine, or at least potentially a zero emission machine. So that really means electric, you know, it needs to be electrified and we need to be generating enough wind, solar and nuclear and other to run it. So that's the situation that puts an emphasis on why it's wartime, right? So we are a factor of 10 off on the production rates of electric vehicles and solar and wind to even achieve this on the schedule we need. So we need to ramp up industry radically in the next half decade to get up to speed to be making all the replacement machines. So then what are those machines? And let's work from the, um, actually just spent the last week literally drawing the children's coloring book of the 1 billion machines you need to replace in the US economy to fix climate change. So the numbers are on top of my head. You know, I've heard interviews with you, and in each interview you reference, oh, just this whack, this past weekend I was casually doing this. I built this spreadsheet. I built this, you know, coloring book about electrification or whatever. <laughs> you always have some project related to this on a weekend. Um, I think that's better than darning socks. <laughs> I think that's I think that's roughly true. Um, also, if we can just pause, you know. Um, I, I just want to say to everyone, why aren't we all high-fiving? 50% reductions in the US by 2030. This is extraordinary. This is the first happy moment I've had in climate since the day I was arrested or nearly arrested on the Harbour Bridge in Sydney. That is actually a science-based target commensurate with hitting, you know, one and a half to two degrees if, you know, if we don't let the long tail go all the way out to 2060 or 2070, but we, we, we continue the momentum through 2030 to 2040. That, that's fabulous. Um, but we don't know how to do that, and that's heroic. So let's let's talk about what you need to do for that. So 250 million vehicles in the US need to be electrified, 70 million gas furnaces, uh, 60 million natural gas furnaces, 10 million oil heater and boiler furnaces, um, which are you know, actually not all oil, 6 million propane, 6 million fuel oil. 20 million natural gas dryers, um, 35 million natural gas stove ranges, six and a half million gas cooktops, a couple of million of gas ovens. We heat a couple of million hot tubs and a couple of million swimming pools with natural gas. They'll need to be run on heat pumps. Um, the This is demand side, and that's just the quote-unquote residential sector. So you'll need to also electrify the heat in the... 5.6 million commercial buildings, which many of them are heated with natural gas. Many of them have natural gas cooking facilities. We also need to retrofit those. If you completely electrify a household, and we did a, a study at Rewiring Maker last year on what it would mean for individual households in the US to be completely electrified, you'll slightly more than double the current amount of electricity in the average US home. So if there's, you know, there's 1.9 vehicles on average or something in the driveway. Um, if you electrify all the miles done in both of those vehicles, you'll you'll add 20 kilowatt hours per day roughly to those households. And if you electrify all the heat, you'll add more. And so that's a little more than double the electricity. So because of that, we're going to need to upgrade nearly every like if you think about the machines out you get a different perspective okay so i've added all these loads now what has to happen to the wiring in my house to enable that um we're gonna have to upgrade the load center that's that gray or black box in your basement or on the side of your house or in your garage where the you are connected to the grid and then all of the wires fan out across your house nearly all of them need to be upgraded so that's a hundred million um the Australian experience is that rooftop solar is the cheapest energy in the world, and that is a 
truism that's here to stay. So let's just briefly stop there because I'm going to argue for 100 million rooftop solar systems. In Australia, with $35 an hour prevailing wage for this type of work, um, rooftop solar is installing at $1 per watt. That's about a third of what it is installing at in the US, where it's $3 a watt. At $1 a watt, financed at a couple of percent, which is the typical financing rate for these things, that's about $0.05 cent per kilowatt hour electricity at your house. To put that in perspective, the average cost of distribution alone in the US, meaning even if the grid produced electricity for free, by the time it gets it to your door, it's about $0.08. Cents. You, But it's actually averages about $0.13 cents in the US um, because they also have to pay to generate the electricity. So for that reason, if you're thinking about the future and, and lowering people's energy costs and the lowest cost of energy, we will maximize the amount. Well, America will figure out how to fix its regulations that are preventing this solar miracle that's happening elsewhere in the world. And then we will maximize the amount of salt, rooftop solar that goes in because that will give us the total cheapest energy system to consumers. So therefore, add 100 million rooftop solar installations to your list of machines, add 100 million household batteries or batteries somewhere in the system to your list of machines. And then that pretty quickly gets you to your 1 billion machines that need uh, replacing. The rest of the machines are big and small in number, but high in impact. So these are the, you know, 240 coal plants you need to re replace, um, the tens of thousands of wind farms and solar farms that will replace them in the natural gas systems. And then it's a small number of steel mills, aluminum smelters, cement factories, where we upgrade and electrify the processes um, in those industrial sectors. So, yes, we need the machines, but in order to get those machines uh, to actually be deployed, we need to change behavior. We need to change the way we do things, right? So when my air conditioning goes bad and I call to get it replaced and I need it right away, that instead of bringing me the same thing that they brought me, maybe they would bring a heat pump instead. We talked about this with Nate the House Whisperer, like, let's just not replace AC with AC, but make sure you have a heat pump instead. You know, how do we think about uh, linking the machines that we need to the behaviors that we're going to need to change uh, to make it happen? That's a great question, Catherine. And I want to riff on that a little bit because it feels like part of the problem that you just identified isn't necessarily a consumer behavior piece. It's a an access piece. It's a contractor issue. It's a manufacturer issue in their relationship with the contractor and actually creating the option for consumers to want it or to not have to think about it. But then there is this whole like behavior piece. And I know part of the argument of this plan is that we actually don't have to change that much in terms of our behavior. So how are you thinking about those how are you thinking about consumer behavior? I'd love to know your your thought process on what you think does need to change. Uh, I'd like to. I'd probably separate this into a couple of questions, and then I'd make it even more complicated, and um, also add finance as a critical, difficult problem. Um, I was reminded this yesterday as the my elderly neighbour was trying to order a goose down sleeping bag with arms and legs so that in her terribly uninsulated house in the suburbs as it descends into winter she doesn't have to pay she got a $900 electricity bill last month because she doesn't have the capital to put solar on to run a, and the capital to run her heat pump um, and so you know this is another version of the duress that Catherine mentioned i think it's the data we have is 40 to 50 percent of air conditioners are bought under duress meaning your wife is pregnant or your partner is sick and it's the middle of the summer and something breaks and we all know that or have heard the headline that half of american households only have 800 dollars in case of emergency so you rush out and buy the cheap one on top of that there's few contractors that speak heat pump as a native tongue etc etc so they're all real problems. But to address the behavior change first, I actually like to think of everyone's banding around what does infrastructure mean? That's a hugely interesting question to me right now. I'm going to build you an argument that the behavior change has just got to think about the infrastructure of your life. 
the history of environmentalism, which it translates a little bit to the history of people who are concerned about climate change, is that, you know, stainless steel water bottles and reusable cups and a whole bunch of behavior changes day to day will help us succeed. But that's really not the case on climate change. There's about eight things in your life that are things that you do every 10 or 20 years that generate all of your emissions. It's the choice of the vehicle that you buy every 10 years or so. It's whether or not there is solar on your roof. Rooftops are replaced every 20 years in the U.S. Um, It's, you know, what is the furnace in your basement? Is it an electric heat pump or isn't it? Um, And what's in your kitchen that is cooking your food? Is it electric or is it running on gas? Um, And we need to focus as a nation on those small number of decisions and we need to make sure that at the moment of purchase that the solutions are the cheapest so that when under duress you're trying to replace your hot water heater in February in Maine there is somebody there to provide you with a heat pump water heater and the backstop systems that will make it work in your house and that it is cheaper because we eliminate soft costs which are permitting and regulatory burdens that we seem to always put in the way of the electrification solutions um, and we need to make sure for everyone at every income level that this is this is possible and it can't just be the schwanky houses it has to be for everybody can't just be the schwanky houses I've got a new hobby, which is driving around unswanky neighborhoods. Like, okay, so I can now figure out how to do this roughly. It's pretty easy if you've got $150,000 to throw at it and you're in the 1%. It's harder if you've got 50 grand that you're doing against your $500,000 mortgage and you're in the suburbs. It's even harder again um, in the lower income, low middle income suburbs where there just isn't the capital and, and it you know, they're older building stock and they're leakier. And I mean, I think we we know the abstract. You can, I can name the machines. That's the easiest bit. So that's what I did first. It's like name and shame the machinery. But now we need an unbelievable bevy of entrepreneurs and business people and public private partnerships. And, you know, hopefully the US government stepping in with new financing instruments to make this available to everyone at their next purchasing decision, which will happen when their furnace fails or their hot water heater goes out or their last internal combustion engine car rusts out. Which tells me that infrastructure means capacity, like on the ground capacity of people who understand how to do this, those those installers that know what the better equipment is to install, that it's better for them to do, that have the right training and certifications, et cetera. Isn't that part of infrastructure? 100%. My cousin, Harley... Uh, lives down the road from me. He is a HVAC technician. He runs a two-truck, two-person shop, and his wife does the um, does the accounting for his firm, and he installs heat pumps, residential and commercial. He is very, very typical of the contractor network in America, um, which is, you know, 50% of solar systems are installed by s- small family shops, and same with heat pumps and everything else. Um we're short half a million or a million Harleys. I mean, Harley, my cousin, not Harley motorcycles. <laughs> um, you know, this that is the the human infrastructure we need are, is exactly that. And, you know, I think if you just licked your finger and put it in the air and had to guess, we're short a million electricians and we're short a million HVAC technicians to get this job done on time. The Energy Gang is brought to you by Aurora Solar. Last year, Aurora brought together 4,000 solar pros from over 15 countries for the Empower Virtual Summit. It's this free one-day event of learning, networking, and inspiration. And this year, the summit is even bigger, with two days of sessions featuring speakers like John Berger, the CEO of Sonova, and Bernadette Del Chiaro, Executive Director of CALSA. You're going to get a front-row seat to the high-stakes net metering policy battle in California and how it may throw a wrench in the industry's growth. You can also learn how to expand your solar business into new markets like storage, EV charging, and smart controllers, and discover the best sales strategies for connecting with customers in a remote and hybrid world. Save your spot for Empower 2021 today at empower.aurorasolar.com energygang or head on over to the show notes and just click there to register. 
We're also brought to you by NLX. The energy industry is changing quickly. You know that. You listen to this show. And project developers are seeing growing demand as businesses and utilities seek a lot more renewable energy. NLX helps solar partners get more revenue from projects by adding flexible distributed energy assets. NLX installs, maintains, and manages energy storage systems, smart electric vehicle charging systems, and more. NLX's solutions help customers of all sizes use energy smarter. By accessing lucrative grid programs and reducing emissions, you can find out more about how to partner with NLX at NLX.com. That's E-N-E-L-X dot com. You've called this a defensible and believable pathway. And I think that there are clearly the technologies that are available to do this, but what you just outlined is daunting, even for the initiated. So why is this plan more believable than anything else? Well, what's your other plan? We're going <laughs> to we're going to sequester carbon dioxide and and use magical hydrogen machines and 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 some pixie dust. Yeah, I mean I suppose so. I mean that's one pathway. Like it's not that it's it's That's it, not my it, pathway, but it is certainly one pathway that some would propose that you there's a lot of point source emissions sequestration, you use a lot of direct air capture, you deploy a bunch of nuclear power plants. I think that's the far end the of the spectrum. So if you if you deploy nuclear power plants, you still have to do this demand side transformation. That that's not really the issue. If you use hydrogen, you're going to double or triple the amount of new electrical generation infrastructure. If you use hydrogen for significant portions of the economy. Because electrolysis is you know, theoretically might get to 60% efficiencies, but really is going to be at 50. So that's to create the hydrogen. You then lose 15% of that energy when you compress it to store it and transport it. You then have to either have it come out and burn it at something less than perfect efficiency or run it through a engine, which will only be 50% efficient or run it through a fuel cell, which will only be 50% efficient. So you get, you know, 25 to 50% at best of that out. So that significantly increases the amount of electricity you need to create in the first place. The carbon sequestration, let's have a sobering conversation about that. Um, Every American uses about 6,000 kilograms, six tons a year of fossil fuels. It, by the time it becomes carbon dioxide, um, it's, it's two and a half or three times that weight, and now it's a gas. Our carbon dioxide weighs as much as every single other thing that humans manufacture and move. All of our concrete and all of our steel and everything, all of our agricultural practices. You literally have to create an industry as large as every single other industry on Earth to sequester substantial amounts of carbon dioxide. I think we should temper our enthusiasms for these pipe dreams. So let's return to, well, actually, there's pretty much only one pathway. It's electrify everything. I can't tell you the exact details and balance of nuclear versus solar or wind. That probably doesn't even matter. But I can tell you what you have to do on the demand side to enable those things to be possible. And sure, let's have, uh, what do you call it at the top of the show, the scattershot approach, the golden silver, silver buckshot. Let's understand that the buckshot that's at the middle of the spray is going to be solar and wind and the machines we've mentioned. And the buckshot at the outside of the spray that merely grazes the animal is going to be um, sequestration and, uh, you know, other fantasies. Yeah. So over a decade ago, I think it was when you're, you all were expecting your first baby. I uh, convinced you to come and speak at the big Gridwise. I was running Gridwise Alliance and, and you spoke at our big forum and I, I was blown away because my vision was always, we gotta have the demand side and supply side of our energy equation be fungible. The demand side has to be able to participate. And you know, I was hoping that we would get there a lot sooner than we are. This is such a key part of it. And I was listening to an interview on the podcast Redefining Energy uh, with the CEO of Octopus Energy. 
And he put it in a way that is absolutely the way I've been thinking about it, but he said it a lot better than I did, which is right now, the way the utilities look at load and the consumers is they say, all right, what's all the load? And consumers, by the way, are only thought of as load. They're not thought of as resource. Uh, and now we're going to match like all of our generation that we have here to that load to meet that load. And it's going to be a bunch of a bunch of natural gas plants, very likely, because that's the result of every model that they have right now is to build another natural gas plant. But what if you were to flip it on its head um, and instead say, all right, what's available on the supply side? We have wind, solar. When is it available? Do we have some storage out there? Or what, what resources do we have? And now let's figure out what on the customer side will meet that demand. And if you have an electrified system, you have this flexibility built in so that you're able to balance the grid in a way that that I don't think you have that capacity unless you unless you really electrify. Would you agree? There's no way we succeed unless that infrastructure, residential infrastructure I just mentioned, your heat pumps, your cars, your battery, your solar, talks to everyone else's heat pumps, batteries, solar. I think that's a justification for why this should qualify for infrastructure-grade financing. Why do we give special financing to utilities to build gas plants yet we won't give very low cost federally guaranteed financing to households remember that roughly 40 percent of our emissions come from decisions you make around your kitchen table what car you drive what furnace is in your basement another 20 percent if you include the commercial sector so if infrastructure isn't the thing that generates 60% of our emissions, then I don't know what infrastructure is. And so then you've got to think about exactly what Catherine said. How do we match these loads to the things? Um, I just finished a fabulous modeling effort with uh, Sam Kalish and Keith Pascoe where we looked at collections of individual appliances in every zip code in the US and and how those appliance loads varied over 24-hour periods throughout the year compared to the solar generation. So, you know, this is some version of how many how many watt hours of batteries do you need to effectively make an oven invisible to the grid? Because it turns out peak solar everywhere is 1 or 2 o'clock in the afternoon and peak oven or cooking is about six or seven o'clock every day and you need about four hours you need to offset the renewables by about four hours to do the ovens you can you can do this for every appliance you can do this for electric vehicles you can do it for you know unfortunately for heat it's about 16 hours after because you want heat at 2 a.m typically and you and the the solar was the day before but we need all of those loads to participate flexibly with the grid so that we can balance things. And we need huge amounts of storage. So you now also got to go through and look at every single one of those pieces of infrastructure and it's like, which one of these can be a battery? And not just an electrochemical battery as we've come to know them, but how can we use the the heating systems, the water heaters and the space heaters as thermal batteries? How can we use noon electricity to heat things that we can then tap that heat back at 2 a.m. when we need it? And it turn, you know, as soon as you open up that shell, you realize that many, many more loads than we realize are um, are shiftable and storable. Um, and it makes you start to ask interesting questions. Like everyone knows the solar story of the enormous cost reductions and that now the modules themselves are so cheap, 20 sec- 26 cents a watt you can buy reasonable quality solar modules for that soft costs dominate even in Australia at the dollar a watt and definitely in the US at two or three dollars a watt. That is now going to be true for batteries. A hundred dollars a kilowatt hour for making batteries. They're going in on walls in LG and Tesla batteries at basically a thousand dollars a kilowatt hour. The nine hundred dollars is other version of soft costs. So now you've got to look at the whole system like where do we just radically eliminate? It's not the hardware that's expensive. It's the soft costs, the installation costs, the retrofitting costs, the permitting costs, the dealing with the regulations and your local AHJ costs. Um, That actually makes this sound less heroic to me. I feel like we should be able to unregulate or improve our regulations to solve this problem. And we've got technology that's ready to support us. Let's talk a little bit more about 
policy in the framework for establishing policy. We're using the the wartime metaphor a lot because it's the historical precedent we have for wrapping our arms around mobilizing at this level. So what does that mean for putting in place the, the, the regulatory pieces and the ramp up in manufacturing and creating jobs? And I want to just think through what that what that means for what would come out of Washington or any other capital. Let's start with the wartime reference first. I mean, what does a wartime mobilization actually look like? Like, I mean, what lessons solved from history tell you it's actually quite helpful to think about this in terms of war preparation? Are there examples that, that you specifically point to? All right. So excuse any colloquial language here, but Dunkirk happens and Churchill poos his pants, calls Roosevelt, says Hitler's coming. He's going to take my Navy and come and get you if, if I fall. I need some machines. It's 1939 when that happens. Roosevelt starts to figure out a response, wants to move really quickly, realizes, I think as Churchill said, this is going to be a war of machines. We need machines. It's going to be fought in the air. We need airplanes. Um, America had 2,000 airplanes total, and most of them were just training aircraft, single-seat training aircraft at that point. Um, It took a couple of years to gain political support, but it then became... No, a project known as the arsenal of democracy. Um, the grand bargain to get it across the line was that the free market would do it and that the US government would pay cost plus 7%, meaning 7% profit over the your costs of making critical war munitions. They made a list of critical war munitions. They were batteries, airplanes, tanks, Liberty ships, which were boats to get all of the stuff there. You know, there's a, there's a longer list. These are the, the main ones. Uh, and so if we were serious, which we should be, about hitting better than two degrees, you need that same couple of years to get all the political support across the board. You need some political grand bargain so that American industry buys in. Uh, and we need to be ramping up aggressively so that the critical war munitions this time around are pretty obvious. Wind turbines, solar cells batteries, heat pumps. You could add to that list a Manhattan project or two in fusion or, you know, fourth or fifth generation nuclear. So you'd like to have that optionality. You could have a Manhattan project on carbon sequestration and hydrogen as well, if you like, and hopefully some of that buckshot hits. But you do, you've prioritized the bullets that you know already work. Um, And then you... You know, by 1942, um, so two or three years later, industry has ramped up, continues to double every, you know, every few months the productivity. And by 1944, are making tens of thousands of you know, li- B-24 Liberty bombers per month. Didn't GDP triple from 1939 to 1942 or 43? So with all of the New Deal's efforts to reduce unemployment from a p- peak of over 20%, in the Great Depression, they'd only reduced it a little bit by this beginning of World War II. Unemployment went to one or two percent. Um, so that was a huge, fantastic employment program. Um, GDP increased threefold. Productivity went through the roof. Uh, and so, you know, if we could do a similar project without also having to send our young men and women overseas to die. It would be fantastic and would create enormous numbers of jobs. Um, I'm a little skeptical of the way we calculate job creation, but if you use the methods that are out there, you get a number like to do this at that scale on that timeline, it's going to create 20 plus million jobs in the short term and and 5 to 10 million permanent new jobs over the decades. Um, Even if they're off by a factor of two or three, it's still an extraordinary number that will, you know, and an extraordinary economic boon. So, Catherine, if if I were to make you the the decarbonization czar, where would you start? <laughs> well, it, it was really interesting hearing the, the history uh, analogy. I fear that a lot of people don't have that to to draw from when they think about what do we need to do on climate. But I think we had a little bit of a taste with COVID 
and trying to ramp up a vaccine and get it deployed very, very quickly and getting companies to do that and trying to to uh, make sure that we're safer so that we can open up. And it's been pretty successful here in the U.S. So I think we can pull from, are we able to do big things and say, yeah, I think we do big things. We need to do even bigger for climate, but we have a little bit of a taste of it. So, can we just, yeah. can we, can we deliciously abuse the over abuse the metaphor of COVID for a second? Because I think there's some really important things here. Sure. Um, yeah. We didn't do a lot of behavior change or efficiency with COVID in the US. And we bet on technology and we bet big on technology. And then we got a vaccine. And now America's feeling very good about itself and is vaccinating very well. But there's still, <laughs> um, still just shy of herd immunity because there'll be some slow adopters so i think um the vaccine for climate change literally you know with it is is this electrification and decarbonization um and there'll be some deniers all the way through um and we won't change our behavior and and scrub our hands and wear masks quite enough so i think this is this suggests that it will be electric f-150s not like tiny little hypercars it will be and electrified American suburbs. We're not going to make everyone move into austere apartments. Um, and we'll throw technology at it. it. Won't be. It'll be a slightly wasteful, but in the long run, it will all breathe a sigh of relief, and it'll be fantastic. And then America can be smug that technology and capitalism won again. Yeah. I, I totally agree. So Rewiring America just put out this uh, report, Rewiring Communities, where you look at exactly what is the what's the big spending item that you could do to get this thing done. And um, it's something I've been working on, too, which is the $100 billion accelerator that was passed a couple times in the House and has been introduced in the Senate and is part of Biden's American Jobs Plan to help buy down upfront costs for all these uh, really cool machines to try to build capacity so that you get uh, recruit, train, certify people on the ground where you organize your markets better and get the right channels put into place so that you can get these technologies out there and then streamlining and you know regulation and all that's going to be really important too but in something like this um equity then does not become an adder so so much of the time when we do programs we say all right we're going to do these big programs on whether it's efficiency or solar rooftop and then oh we have to have a carve out this doesn't require carve out this says Equity is built into the way we do things, and we have to do that because there are so many communities that have been left behind in the transition. There are so many communities that are adversely impacted by all of the machines that they already have. There are so many communities that can't pay what they need to to survive, and this is all built into it. So I think there is a way to move forward. I think electrification is a way to do it, and I think we're starting to get and see a lot more political support for this, and the trick will be just... How can we get it done on a federal level that is really deployable in the communities? This is going to be very much based on how communities uh, adjust and deploy. I think Catherine said everything very well. Um, you know, at the end of the day, you don't fix climate change, which is why we would do this um, unless everyone can afford it. Um, and so I think that's that sobers you up straight away. Um the study that we just did for We're Our America was, okay, well, let's f look for the communities. Let's understand where the fuel oil and kerosene and propane heaters are. Let's understand where the electricity with a heat pump already beats natural gas and, you know, count up how many households in its tens of millions that would already benefit in terms of their monthly economics, um, meaning lower energy prices if we electrified their machinery today. And, you know, at the risk of jumping ahead, but there is a giant, there should be a giant motivator here. Um, if you look out to say 2025 or 2028, um, I don't find a serious forecaster that doesn't believe that solar will be even cheaper at under a dollar a watt. Um, the, wholesale cost of batteries then will be 50 to 75 dollars a kilowatt hour they'll be able to find their way into appliances and into cars and into batteries inside your house for a hundred ish dollars a kilowatt hour at those numbers um 
and even compensating for the other retrofits for the um, the heat pumps and the um, load centers in your home. Uh, if you get those things installed, you will take the four and a half thousand dollars a year, which is what a current American household spends on energy, and it will become about two thousand dollars a year, two and a half thousand dollars a year. So we could be saving every U.S. household two thousand dollars a year by about 2028. It's absolutely not true today because of all the things we've mentioned. Solar is still too expensive. Batteries are still too expensive. It's still a pain in the ass to get that electric vehicle in your community. But once we get there, we can already see that the economics are going to be hugely positive. And, you know, let's put that in perspective. For the average household in the US, this is not even the median, the average household, $61,000 is their annual expenditure. They spend more on gasoline than they do on fresh food and they spend more on uh, natural gas than they do on dentistry more uh, you know we we have the opportunity to have a huge impact in that household when you save them two thousand of that sixty one thousand if you look at the median it's more like forty something thousand dollars for the total household expenditures so there's a giant carrot here which is if we do this right coordinated across the economy we can save every household a lot, and that will add up and be saving half a trillion dollars a year to the US economy. This should put paid to the insidious narrative uh, that is out there that any new deal is going to cost us and ruin the economy. No, no, it's going to save us and it's going to save the economy. Um, and we just need to get everyone there. The big challenge is people don't trust models. They trust the price in the catalog today. <laughs> And this will only be true after we've got to scale and when these things, you know, it's, it's, it, we need to sell the vision of 2025 to 2028. That's what used to happen in politics, right? We will go to the moon by the end of the decade and let's not shy away from it. 50% carbon reductions by 2030 is a more ambitious destination that we have a less clear vision of how to get there than we did when we were going to go to the moon at the end of the decade. Um, but we used to sell the dream and the vision. Now we do politics by poll and, and, you know, most people who are polled will say, well, it still feels like that electric car costs more and it still feels like that solar costs too much. And so the big struggle is the political leadership and visioneering and returning us to, you know, here's where we're going Yes, there'll be a couple of years where we have to figure out the details, but when we get there, this is going to be an incredible destination. This is like the the future America that we all want. And and I still think we're stuck. Yes, there's policy conversations going on, but I still think we're we're a little bit short on the selling the vision. I I will say that I still while our politics in America are so broken, I still believe that the proper framing of this kind of set of solutions can mobilize people. I think we are capable of that. And Americans do historically respond to the challenge of doing big things. And I know, you know, our beloved former co-host Jigger Shaw has talked a lot about this. I believe that people can respond to that. So um, I hold that hope. Hoorah! And there are a lot of politicians that aren't still cynical. I know. I agree. So Senator Heinrich uh, gathered about 14 of his He's my next colleagues. phone call this morning. Uh-huh. He gathered uh, over about 14 of his colleagues in the Senate. And yesterday they issued a resolution, electrifying America's future resolution that basically says here, do what Saul says. And uh, it's, it's really great. And it, and it shows that there are a lot of leaders out there who are really trying to think big um, and really trying to um, inspire in a way that also addresses why they're there as elected officials and, and who they, who they're responsible to. And, Basically, it's all the people that we need to save from climate. Absolutely. So I we've been going for a long time and we haven't laid out all the practical set of solutions. And so I'm going to ask you to condense them into an answer. And I want to hear from both of you on what some of the other practical sets of solutions are. And and they f it feels like there's a few that we need to just quickly mention, which is one, we need some kind of low interest lending program from the government, similar to what the government did to back mortgages uh, in order to electrify houses quickly. Um, 
we need some kind of set of building codes and standards that will make heat pumps some of the only options when retrofitting homes. And it's not about like banning certain technologies, but about creating more stringent building codes. Let's see, what else am I missing? What what are the what are the big ones here, Saul? I think finance is foundational. I I speak a good game about how we build machinery like um, Federal Housing Authority, Fannie Mae, federally government federally guaranteed interest rates for mortgages. But I really increasingly think that you need to think about the 25% of households that don't own their own home, um, renters, you need to think about the LMI community, and you need to think about how do you make these things look like point of purchase rebates. So it's not a complicated calculation when you're in the appliance store of, well, if I spend more now and I save $8 per month on my energy bill by 2027, I'm going to save money. How many people do that when they're shopping for a stove or a hot water heater? Um, We need to figure out the rebates so that the cash out the door at the moment of purchase are not going to get you. And I think there's huge possibility for regulatory and finance innovation and business model innovation that can make those things true. But we need that to be true as well as low interest for the right machinery. Yeah, we absolutely have to internalize and embed um, equity in all of this so that every community community can benefit. And I think, uh, you know, I've been working on this with the Solar Equity Coalition, and a lot of what we have been saying is very close to what Rewiring America is saying. It's more on the solar side than electrification, but it's all about making up the difference in cost, making sure that Puerto Rico and tribal folks can get can get the same benefits and have access to the same sort of, um, it's not even tax structures, but grants that everybody else can, and making sure that jobs go into those communities that are going to be created. Um, as SL said, we need a lot more people to do this work, and we need to bring from those communities so, we're, so that we're not in the same position as the gas fracking communities in in Pennsylvania, where pe- jobs were being imported rather than pulled from the community. So these are these are local solutions for a global problem. And I think the Rewiring America folks and Saul have a lot of those solutions. And I think there are others who are thinking along the same lines, maybe not with the same words, but I think we would have similar outcomes. Let's go to free electrons here. I thought about talk- talking about free molecules, but I thought that would anger you, Saul. <laughs> so we're going to stick with free electrons. Um, Catherine, what's yours this week? Oh, this is a very personal free electron. Uh, it's about my husband, who a uh, number of years ago, we made a family decision for him to focus on our two younger children. We have four kids. Two, the two younger ones happened to have Down syndrome. And uh, we made the decision that because our school system does not include people of all types of intelligence and all uh, ways of learning and contributing that he would instead follow them through school. So he went through middle school three times and middle school sucks the first time. He went back with each boy as they went through middle school and interpreted everything for them so that they could learn the same materials that everybody else learned, which they did. We found an amazing high school that was experimenting in inclusion, and one graduated last year from Bishop O'Connell High School, and our other one's just finishing his junior year very successfully. And my husband, who's been advocating all this time, and he had been the lead advocate in the Waxman-Markey, the original uh, climate change legislation uh, back in the Obama years, um, he was the lead lobbyist for the Sierra Club, and he'd, he'd been there for a dozen years and had done advocacy all of his life, and so his advocacy was well-placed with our family. He decided it's okay now. I think our guys are in good shape. They've learned what they need to learn, and they're going to continue to learn. And so today he started a new job, and he is the Senior Director of Federal Policy for Form Energy the long duration storage company. And I cannot be more proud of him. I am so excited because I think they, along with all the machines that Saul talked about, will save the world. And I'm looking forward to him having this next phase and uh, getting back into the mix. It's a good time to do it. So I wanted to share that. What a delightful story. 
Congratulations, Dave. What a delightful sounding man. Have have your husband say hi to Mateo <laughs> for me. I live I live across the hill in San Francisco from Mateo. Yes, we are we are fans of Mateo. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that. Saul, what is your free electron? Wow, I, I'm humbled by that one. So I'm struggling, but it, you know, if you want to know what's on top of my mind, um, I'm thinking a lot about pipelines, railways, and right of ways. There's 140,000 miles of Class One freight railway. A large portion of that, about 25% of that, is used nearly exclusively for coal. There's a 50-foot setback or right of way either side of those rail lines. If you covered the freight rail that's dedicated to coal in the US with industrial solar today, it would produce more net energy than our coal system does. There's, you know, hundred thousands of miles of natural gas and oil pipeline also have big right-of-ways. Turns out they would similarly produce enormous portions of our energy. Turns out these pipelines and these pieces of infrastructure connect to population centers because not you know it's not crazy but it's the people at the end of those lines that want that energy so we i really think there are we haven't even scratched the surface of the creative solutions that will come out in terms of repurposing so you want to you want political stories that are about transition it's like okay this is dedicated land that already has right of way that's already our energy infrastructure let's look beyond this cyber attack problem which is bad not insurmountable and let's rethink that infrastructure in a way that's going to be much more robust have redundancy built in is similar footprint um but is clean and renewable and you can transition those jobs out elegantly into these new jobs because they're in the same geographic places maintaining the same types of infrastructure i i think there's a lot of reason for hope there well you are now the third guest co-host who has talked about using existing rights of way for solar in different ways. Uh, one is a journalist, one is oh, a Oh, I thought it was my idea first. Someone went back in time and is, had my idea and, before and, me And again. one is an inventor. <laughs> and so I think the three of you need to get together and do a task force, some kind of global task force on rights of way. Yes, yeah, Alan, it's <laughs> even tomorrow for you. You're way, you're way behind. I'm in the future, yeah. <laughs> no, but you, your, your idea was original, but there, there were kind of multiple ways of thinking about rights of way for solar. I, I love it. The thing that's on my mind is Bitcoin, obviously, just because of the crazy crypto uh, fluctuations that are happening right now and Tesla's role in accepting Bitcoin and holding a lot of Bitcoin and Elon Musk's, the criticism of Elon Musk for accepting Bitcoin because of its environmental impact. I just think that this dust up about the climate impact of Bitcoin is kind of meaningless. And like, yes, Bitcoin mining... It uses a lot of energy. The mines around the world emit about as much CO2 as New Zealand or Argentina or Ireland. It's a lot of CO2. Um, But I think that a lot of the people who are worried about CO2 emissions from Bitcoin think about this in in terms of linear uh, electricity use and linear emissions. And what you're seeing is a lot of Bitcoin operations, mining operations are going to places with a lot of geothermal or with a lot of hydropower. Um, There are a lot of commitments from miners to use renewable energy to power their operations. And I just, I look at like Bitcoin and then I look at the rest of the banking sector and we just had an episode about this. Since the Paris Climate Agreement was announced, banks around the world have committed trillions of dollars to fossil fuels. And yet you have all these people who are worried about you know, the, 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 these relatively small Bitcoin operations and the emissions they're putting out. It just feels to me very misplaced. And I'm bringing this up because of the blowback that Elon Musk got because of his holdings in Bitcoin. Just curious what you, what you think about it. I, I think the energy profile is just that the people who wrote the code did bad code. And so, you know, look to code efficiency, change the algorithms. Like Bitcoin's not the, it's the first, not the last. I, if Tesla wants to accept Bitcoin, it should accept Bitcoin. We need as much liquidity in this market as possible. And so, you know, people aren't up in arms because Tesla's taking a loan from Chase Bank or whatever that is, uh, you know, JP Morgan Chase that's financing coal plants around the world. Like if they can get the money to finance more electric cars and get them to people faster, then Let's do it. And I don't care if it's Bitcoin or if it's any other 
you know, any other form of money. Saul, uh, thank you so much for joining us so early uh, in tomorrow. I guess it's 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 our tomorrow. Your today. You came you came with us at three thirty in the morning, and we really appreciate it. Where can people go to find out more about your work and your team's work? Um, what should people be looking out for? We'll put it in the show notes. Oh, shameless plug opportunity. Um, rewiringamerica.org. Um, we're getting started we're ramping up we're trying to build a retail climate movement so that we can advocate for the right policies the right regulatory environment the right finance Um, nominally 60 odd million Americans really care about climate change we want to sign them up and make a political force that's bigger than the AARP and bigger than the NRA so come and join us shameless plug also I have a book called Electrify coming out with MIT Press in October. I think you can pre-order it now. Um, it sort of goes into a lot more detail on a lot of these topics uh, and builds the case for electrification um, as you know, central to any rapid, desperate attempt to uh, keep some coral reefs and solve climate change. Thanks again to everybody for listening. We are a production of Postscript Audio. You can hit us up on social media. You can find Saul... Catherine, myself, there. As always, let us know what you think about the show and give us a rating and review anywhere you get your shows. We will catch you shortly. We'll talk to you soon. 